Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, and wildlife restoration. If you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference, regardless of your current circumstances, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And if you come along for this journey, I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all. So give it a listen, and if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Matthew Dodder. Matthew is the executive director of the Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society, and he's a longtime influential birder and educator in the San Francisco Bay Area. Matthew has taken an interesting journey in his life, catching the birding bug at an early age and embarking on a lifetime of learning and positioning himself to make the jump from a career that was in graphic design over to leading a large Audubon chapter at the heart of Silicon Valley. As you'll hear, Matthew is thoughtful and introspective about this journey. He has a lot of wisdom to offer those of you who are looking to make a similar jump and also those who are looking to inspire others to make a jump into wildlife conservation or education. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew. Thank you. In reading your bio on the Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society webpage, I saw that you started birding at the age of 14. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started? Yeah, I was living in Boston, and there was a large blizzard in 1977 and another one in 78. We were stuck at home for 10 days. School was canceled, and and it was very difficult to get around. In fact, uh, the teachers began to send home assignments through the newspaper. I, for some reason, became concerned with the birds, how they were going to find food because all the, the ground was covered up with snow and it was impossible to see anything on the ground. And for some reason, I just became worried about them. So I threw out some bird seed and uh, just watched them come in. I realized pretty quickly that the little brown birds were not all the same. And that was somewhat interesting, but when a cardinal flew in, I really, it was kind of an epiphany for me. I, I had to know what that was and what the brown bird that was about the same size and same shape that came with it, what that was. It turned out it was a male and a female cardinal. I had to learn more about that. So as soon as it was possible, I found a field guide at a nearby bookstore and uh, started learning about it. So I always say that my interest in birds began with two important um, concepts. One was curiosity and another one was concern. That was kind of the beginning of everything. And that was in 1977. Well, that's really interesting because I think for a lot of people anyway, before they really build that concern, it takes kind of a longer evolution in the process where maybe you first become aware of something then you learn a little, and then you start to have the concern later. So that blizzard was really a trigger for you. I learned how to make bread, too, as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the the cardinal was sort of the, uh, the spark bird, they say. But um, something happened that spring as well uh, when I saw my first um, ruby-throated hummingbird. That was something I just could not believe. And then... Year after year, there was experience after experience, first scarlet tanager, uh, first snowy owl, and it just goes on and on. Every every new bird was a discovery. Uh, I just felt that it was way better than any nature show, was to be outside in the wild, seeing birds for real, 
um, with my own eyes, and I just couldn't get enough of it. So it's been kind of a passion ever since. So the cardinal was the spark bird, and then you saw the ruby-throated hummingbird. So that just cemented it for you? Oh, it absolutely did. And uh, what I realized then is that, you know, a ruby-throated hummingbird is something fairly kind of familiar to most people from greeting cards and, you know, Christmas wrapping and all of those kind of commercial images of the hummingbird. But I'd never seen one for real. And when I did see it, I, I simply couldn't believe that this tiny, almost insect-sized animal was a bird and that it, it had a heartbeat and it had warm blood. Uh, and it was just the most amazing, metallic, iridescent animal I'd ever seen. Yeah, I suppose that it really cemented my interest, which began with the cardinal and with the snow. It, it seemed that every year, every month, every week, I was finding something in my neighborhood that um, I had only seen on television or in nature shows. And here they were in my neighborhood, and I was experiencing them myself and, and learning about how the animals fit together and they fit into their habitat it was it was eye opening, um, and really nothing was the same after that because it became an absolute obsession for me to learn more about it and to help other people understand what was what was around. So you know, one other interesting tidbit that you mentioned when we were sort of prepping for this mm -hmm. interview today is that uh, there was an instance where you corrected some seasoned birders when you were just fourteen, and you, and you put that in quotes. So I, I guess there's a story behind that. Yeah, well. First of all, I didn't know any birders when I was 14. I didn't I didn't really know that this was a culture that existed or that you could find other birders to go birding with. So it was a very solitary experience for me. As a result, I considered myself the only expert in in the world. And um, so when my family would visit other people's homes for lunch or for dinner, and they would say, oh, Matthew likes birds. You know, well, you know, we've got a, a redheaded woodpecker in our backyard nesting. So, of course, I had never seen a redheaded woodpecker, and I, I wanted to see it for sure. Well, it turned out that it wasn't a redheaded woodpecker. It was a downy woodpecker, and uh, but it does have red on the, on the male. So there was a mistake made by um, an older a uh, person who also enjoyed birds, and I really, uh, I just had to correct him. And in another instance, someone would say that they had uh, nesting hawks in their neighborhood or something, and I would I would say with absolute authority, no, that can't possibly be. We don't have those here. They would sort of look at me amused, and uh, it turned out they did have the red-shouldered hawk in their uh, in their neighborhood, and it was nesting there. But I felt that I knew everything, so I had to correct them. And uh, what I learned is that I didn't know everything and that it was still possible for me to learn. <laughs> but it was also still possible for me to find uh, mistakes that other people had made. And it just it kind of humbled me a little bit because I had this adolescent superiority complex that wore away pretty quickly when I learned that there's that this really truly is a, a lifetime pursuit and you could go for decades and still learn things 
including including seasoned birders and including young kids like myself. Yeah, corrected corrected the seasoned birders. Uh, sometimes yes, and most of the time no. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's sort of a natural progression for adolescents. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of adults, too, that fall into the uh, I think they call it the Dunning-Kruger spectrum. You know, flash forward to where you are today as executive director at Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society. You've obviously been accumulating a lot of knowledge and insights over the years. I'm, I'm curious. So between the age of 14 and where you are today, you know, I can tell that, that you've gained a lot of knowledge about bird identification, of course, but also the ecology of birds. And how, you know, how did that progress for you? Was it through experience or classes or mentors? You know, granted, that's a, it's a, you know, a couple decades there in between. So it's maybe multiple things, but I, I'm curious what stands out in that progression. Well, biology class was important because I learned a little bit about how life forms fit together in an ecological setting. So that was helpful, but it wasn't about birds. It was just about the interlocking uh, nature of uh, life forms, uh, whether, you know, whether it be algae or mosquitoes or what have you, everything sort of has a place. So uh, with regard to birds specifically, I, I didn't really have any mentors. Like I said, I didn't know of any other birders and I didn't, there was no list service. There was no eBird. In fact, the RBA was uh, simply posted uh, weekly in the Boston Globe, so you had to call in and leave a message, and you couldn't access the names of the people who left those messages. So uh, it was difficult to find birders. Years later, I learned that there was a Brookline Birding Club, which is quite famous, actually, but somehow it escaped my notice. I was an insatiable consumer of nature shows. And I loved uh, everything from Jacques Cousteau to Wild Kingdom. There's a constant mantra in these in these uh, television shows about the importance of the environment and habitat and habitat conservation and the preservation of creatures. And so it became sort of instilled in me the importance of those things. Somewhere about age 15, I guess, I read Voyage of the Beagle. Quickly after that, I read Origin of the Species. And I, I realized how important, how, how much there is to learn about the nature of relationships between animals of the same species and of different species. And I just started doing a lot of reading along those lines. And it became fascinating to me to, to learn more about how things fit together. I just sort of continued that for my whole life, really continual obsession over the course of many years. Mm -hmm. And it's obvious to me that a big part of your life is also avian artwork. So I, I'm interested as to how that came into play. And I'm sure that that was also a big influence on your continually growing skills. Yeah, well, I am interested in, in art, especially drawing. I, I should have pointed out that after high school, my family moved to the West Coast, and my father uh, and I drove across the country together. And my mom and, and our dog met us in California. And uh, while we drove, of course, I was birding, and I, I noticed 
how uh, Eastern and Western birds kind of naturally complement each other. For example, blue jay and Stellar's jay. They don't exactly live in the same habitat, but they're clearly related. Um, scarlet tanager and Western tanager, tufted titmouse and oak titmouse. So I would see how these East-West relationships played out firsthand. And the interesting thing was that I didn't have a Western field guide. I had a very ancient um, North American field guide with poor illustrations and not not a great amount of information. So I had to discover these things on my own, and uh, it, it was really uh, instrumental in in helping me understand uh, the way birds fit together and their habitats that they choose and the subtle differences between them and the and the um, the specificity of a bird's habitat. So that was a, that was another really important thing, that trip across the country with my father. And that was in 81. With regard to art, in, uh, in 77, my parents could tell that uh, birds were going to be a, a long interest of mine and that I also loved to draw, mostly dinosaurs and cars, but took an interest in birds and quickly tried to draw them with um, with pencil. I still have some of those drawings, actually. But my parents gave me a wonderful book by uh, Fenwick and Lansdowne, artist and writer team that wrote uh, Birds of the Eastern Forest, Birds of the Northern Forest, and Birds of the Western Forests. I could not get enough of them. They were very realistically done. They were far more detailed than the illustrations that Roger Torrey Peterson had done for his field guide. And I thought I would love to I'd love to do that. I mean, there's there's something deeply satisfying about seeing a bird and then trying to draw or paint it. In fact, I will never draw a bird that I have not seen um, because it's very important to me to solidify that experience, feed the drawing with my personal experience. So when I see a new bird, one of my first things is, oh, I have got to draw that. And uh, so I have hundreds of drawings of birds. It's it's because of that interest in preserving, prolonging the experience and also informing the drawing somehow with the personal experience. I work with colored pencil, usually in sort of a larger than life format. Well, for small birds, it's larger than life because it's it's easier for me to get the detail uh, with a large drawing of a warbler. I, I'm always amazed at how uh, some artists can draw or paint particularly David Sibley, uh, such small illustrations and have them look so beautiful. I need to draw them larger and then shrink them down, and then somehow they look better when I when I reduce the size. But yeah, art is really important to me. I wish I could say the same thing about music, but art um, drawing is sort of my my uh, practice, my craft. You know, from the, the few times I've attempted to draw, uh, what I've really realized is it's, it's similar to in my mind, the process of describing a bird to somebody else. Often you see a bird and you know through the set of observations, like the color, the size, the behavior, you can just tell, okay, oh, that's a northern cardinal, like you mentioned earlier, or a song sparrow or something like that. But then when you try to articulate those details to somebody else, it's often much harder, especially for less experienced birders. And 
by drawing, you're kind of going through that process. You're, you're realizing what, what are all the details that make this bird unique visually. Uh, so then you can walk away and say, well, the primary projection is longer on this bird than on the other bird or some other subtle variance in spotting or stripes or something like that. Yeah, there's really nothing that uh, that, that uh, cements understanding of a, of a bird or any life form until you try to draw it because you do you do learn exactly how the pieces fit together it's uh, it's easy to kind of imagine a black necked stilt in in your mind but uh, when you're looking at a drawing or looking at a photograph and trying to draw it or from life you're going to learn things that you just hadn't noticed before i love that moment where you realize something about um, an animal because you're trying to you're trying to put it on paper with your hands, prolong the experience and, and learn something from it. So, yeah, drawing for me is really much, a, uh, very much a learning experience. And it's one reason why I like teaching so much. It's the process of teaching that helps you learn something. I'm sure you've heard other people say that, but when you try to teach somebody about birds or music or anything, you have to know the material backwards and forwards and you end up learning it with more confidence than you had before. So I think the same happens with drawing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one thing I neglected to mention is your your artwork. You've you've been published in different forums. You've had shows. Um, I think you even sell your work as well, right? I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's. Yes. it's it's really good, is, is what I would say. And then when uh, when we publish this in the show notes, I'll make sure to link to wherever you want me to link to, to uh, so that anyone listening can take a look. Oh, great. Well, thank you. I, I like that. Oh, you know, um, I like to post drawings in process. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because I sort of like the positive feedback that I often get, but I also like whatever feedback comes back. It also feels to me that to show my drawings in their early stages, it might help uh, encourage people to give it a try themselves because any drawing has to start with one or two scribbled lines and anybody can do one or two scribbled lines. And if you just keep kind of working at it, you will eventually begin to look like whatever you're trying to represent. And I, I like my role in that regard because I feel like I'm I'm encouraging people to try this this wonderful thing. And uh, a, a lot of times people have said that they they really enjoy seeing the the images done in in uh, process so they can see how it starts, how it begins, how it ends up. I've seen people turn around and and draw or paint after they've seen me kind of struggle with it and I freely say, "Oh, this this one's really difficult. I'm having a hard time with this particular drawing." So anyway, I like being that force in people's lives maybe to to help them to to give them the courage maybe to try because it's not going to turn out great the first time and it is going to take a little while but it eventually it'll work yeah well it certainly makes it much more accessible to people and i I think it's helpful for everyone like most processes are messy and when you only see the finished product you you have no idea what went into that and it's normal for it to be messy so I, i appreciate that very much you know, in your career, so you moved to the West Coast, and uh, I know you spent quite a few years doing graphic designing at a variety of different firms. 
I assume that during that period you were still engaged in birding. Well, I know that because you've been you've been teaching birding classes for many years as well. Did did you ever start to stray away from birding when uh, career demands started to become greater? No, not really. Um, I've I've always. But the thing is that well, I should back up a little bit because I have a I have a peculiar background. Uh, after I majored in English literature at Berkeley, and then I went to seminary at uh, the Pacific School of Religion, and then I um, fell in love with graphic design and, and uh, pursued that for uh, almost 30 years. Then I um, then I started working at Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society. But the entire time through that strange kind of winding pathway, I was birding every free moment I had. And I, I can say that there were times where the demands of work or school made it difficult to bird as much as I wanted to. But in fact, my thesis at seminary had to do with uh, conservation and, and preservation of the California condor. So even during school, I was drawing on my interest in birds to to, to uh, communicate. Yeah, I, I think that uh, birding and uh, love of nature has never left me, but there have been times where it's it's had to take a uh, back seat because of demands of life. Yeah, so one thing that, that I'm always interested in learning about is that you know, there's sort of a traditional path to making an impact when it comes to conservation or preservation, habitat restoration. And that traditional path is you go to school, you get a biology or environmental sciences degree or something like that, and you do years of field work and, uh, and you build up a career over time. What I've seen is that there's a lot of people that really want to get involved and make a difference, and they maybe don't have that traditional background. You're a perfect example of that, what you just walked through to what you're doing today. So you're overseeing one of the larger Audubon Society chapters in California as executive director. Uh, you somehow were able to make that leap from your other career, and I'm curious if you could fill in a few of those blanks. Like obviously you stayed very engaged in birding in the community, but how did that transition come about? How did you prepare yourself to seize the opportunity when it came? Well, that's an interesting question. And I should point out that my, uh, my education has really no relationship at all with my career now. I did not pursue uh, an English uh, you know, literature professorship. Uh, did not. I was not ordained. Uh, I did not study uh, graphic design. Um, I did not study um, conservation or wildlife management or anything like that. So basically, I don't know how I got to be where I am, except that I never really stopped doing what I love to do. And in the process of being a birder, developing some expertise in in birds. And uh, kind of using birds as the filter through which I put everything, every trip to Europe, every choir trip to uh, overseas, every business trip was always an opportunity for me to find birds somewhere and to experience that habitat. I guess what that means is that I never lost sight of what I truly love. And uh, I had been involved with Audubon quite a bit. I was on the board of directors um, about 10 years ago for a period of five years. And I kind of got my feet wet with the chapter then, what it needed 
and how I could help. Uh, and then demands of work pulled me away from that. I never did stop thinking about uh, birds or or birding on the weekends or anything like that. So really, I guess what I'm saying is that it's important to know what truly makes you happy. Uh, and it, it may not be what your paid career is, but it is what will make you happy. So I had a long career in graphic design, several prestigious Bay Area firms, and uh, I acquired a lot of knowledge there, uh, not only about the craft, which I didn't study in school, but I, I had some talent and I, I became a senior designer at a prestigious firm. But the firm, the clientele was primarily high tech uh, companies in Silicon Valley and a big part of successful marketing and design is advertising, communication, messaging. And those are all skills that I learned pretty well uh, when I was working as a graphic designer, as a senior designer. And uh, at the same time, my uh, education in college and grad school had to do was a lot of writing and reading. So I learned how to how to compose a sentence and how to how to write uh, clearly and cohesively. And uh, that fed into my position here at Audubon, I think, because I do quite a bit of writing, quite a bit of communication, quite a bit of, of marketing, in fact. In a, in, it's taken me a long time to get here. I'm 56 years old now, and I kind of feel that I, I'm finally exactly where I should have been quite a while ago. But to be honest, I don't think I could have been here unless I had gone down that windy road that took me all these different places. Because at each stop along the way, each uh, direction in school, each career, each each uh, job, it in, it informed me somehow about uh, how I can help Audubon, truly help Audubon, and, and be uh, a good part of it. And I, I'm now so happy and so satisfied that I really, I can't imagine myself in a better place, actually. That's great. I, I recall the first time that uh, that I met you in person, I could see that enthusiasm, even at that time, that uh, that you were just so joy, you know, overjoyed to be in that role. I, I was thinking it might be helpful to back up for a moment and maybe talk a little bit about what the mission of the Audubon Society is and how local chapters, such as the one that you oversee, uh, work towards that mission. Well, the mission has been similar uh, through its entire almost 100-year history, but uh, fairly recently with the, the language was tightened a little bit. Basically, what we do is we promote the education, the enjoyment, understanding and protection of birds through through education, engagement of people of all ages. So the, the combination of uh, knowledge and understanding and appreciation of birds and uh, the education that we're tasked ourselves with doing, it's perfect. It's absolutely a perfect mission, I think, because all we really want to do is to encourage people to notice, think about, care about, and learn about the birds around them. And uh, I really can't think of a more aspirational goal because, uh, you know, I've, I've always said that when you uh, when you learn about something, you, you begin to care about it. And when you care about it, you begin to change the way you think about that thing. So if you begin to care about 
tricolored blackbirds or California condors. You start to examine what it is that you're doing or not doing to help them. So there's the concern part. It's the curiosity and the concern that I spoke about earlier. We want people to be curious about birds. We want them to care about them. And when people care about something, they they change the way they vote in uh, on issues. Uh, and they care about the uh, the policies of their local governments or of their HOA. Uh, so it, it basically colors everything in my life. The fact that I have this care about birds, this interest in birds. When I look at landscaping uh, in the neighborhood and I, I see that there's a tree that's being cut down this time of year, it's probably not the best time to cut it down uh, because this is potentially a time where birds might be nesting in that tree and other animals might be using that tree for something. So I would never have thought about that unless I bothered to learn about birds. But I did bother, and now I do care. And it now it does change the way I react when I see things happening around. One subtlety in, in what you just described that uh, I want to point out, and I, I've for years kind of fell into this trap, when I would hear a discussion about the environment and there'd be a, some call to action to vote in a certain way or or something like that. It always seemed very abstract to me because when I would I would associate voting with, say, state and national elections. And there's so many different issues that go into the candidate that you choose. But you mentioned HOA. And, and I, I really like that, tying that into something that uh, that you can individually make a big difference in. In my own backyard, I've been surveying the insects that uh, that I see for the last 60 days. So we're in the middle of the shelter in place for COVID-19 right now. And I thought this would be a, sort of a fun endeavor to do on the side and see what I could find. And when I, when I go to a native plant in my yard, it's a hotbed of activity. There's so many different bugs, so many different insects uh, there. And uh, it's just, it's, eye-opening as to how important even those sorts of decisions are. Uh, so I really appreciate you calling out to the full spectrum, not just, uh, say, president or senator. Yeah. Well, the importance of native plants cannot be overstated, that's for sure, because they do they do attract so many insects that exotic plants do not. And in, an, in a backyard or a townhouse compound, the uh, non-native plants just don't attract the food that birds enjoy. So you can find sort of uh, dead dead zones uh, simply because of the way the, the plants have been selected to uh, to landscape. It does make me think about a, a whole other branch of Audubon, which I didn't mention earlier, but it's it's our it's our conservation wing. We're charged with educating and conserving, preserving and uh, conservation. So that's a really an important part. It, it's the action part of what we do. You know, it's, it's fine to educate, but we need to actually direct these educated people and direct our education energy towards action. And that's how, for example, we've been able to work with local companies to help them install bird safe features in their buildings or in their campuses. And that wouldn't happen without really an active and energetic conservation effort on our part. That's a that's a big part of what our Audubon does. It's a it's a big part of what I think a lot of Audubons would do, but they don't always have the staff to uh, 
to execute on it. So, but we try very hard to be actively engaged. And um, it's very wonderful to think about greater sage grouse elsewhere in, in, the, uh, in the state or in the country. And but we need to act. We need to act local. Uh, locally, you know the the old slogan, "Think globally, act locally," is kind of analogous to statewide politics versus your own HOA. <laughs> what can what can you do locally with the with the the meager powers that that you might have as an individual? What can you do just locally in your neighborhood to help? The situation help the situation of birds and in turn help the situation for any number of other life forms that that live in your area so it just takes that that first step to bother to learn about and then to learn to care and care leading to action right and one other thing to point out too is here in santa clara county you kind of have an outsized influence, I think, on uh, on the tech world. I mean, it's the heart of Silicon Valley. So you have these companies like uh, like Facebook and Google, Twitter, Netflix, the list goes on and on that have campuses around the world. And uh, and I've seen the influence. I've seen that, that many of these companies, through some of the influence from Audubon Society, have changed the way they landscape their own campuses. And they've expanded that to other parts of the world as well. You, you never know what acting locally can lead to. And, and here, you know, maybe even more so. Yeah. You know, it it's also just it's just plain beautiful to to landscape a large campus with uh, native plants, because when you do that, you're attracting native uh, animals as well. And it also makes that particular campus really interesting, just locally interesting. A campus that uh, goes from state to state or from nation to nation, to have it landscaped with uh, native plants is good for the environment. It's also good for just the the uh, employee's experience to see the natural life that exists there and the, the, um, the animals that it attracts. I could go on and on <laughs> on this topic. You know, there's, just, there's so much data now coming out to, to back that assertion, too, that getting out in nature, observing nature, it's, it's meditative for people. It's really restorative. And I think that a lot of these forward-looking companies are identifying with that. I did want to, you alluded a little bit ago to, you know, when you were starting birding, there weren't things like eBird. And that's an, you know, an interesting insight because these days there are so many tools at our disposal, whether it's eBird and they have a, a bird cast where you can see how they predict migrations might transpire based on the weather. There's uh, there's apps that by just pointing your phone at a, at a bird or uploading a picture to it, it will do a pretty good job identifying it. So technology is changing rapidly. I'm curious as to how you see Audubon, and maybe you can only speak for Santa Clara Valley Audubon, but how you see it evolving as technology evolves. That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think, for one thing, I should say that I, I like the active process of, of learning something. I like the fact that we have to struggle with uh, the Pittenax flycatchers and that some of the um, winter-plumaged shorebirds are difficult to distinguish. I, I like that because it's a challenge for us. It makes the learning process really active. So I always sort of wince when I hear about software that allows you to identify it without really engaging in a bird. I think that what Audubon can do is to you know, rekindle people's sense of, of wonder and amazement when uh, they see something they don't quite understand, they don't recognize immediately. 
and have to work with it a little bit to learn it. So I think what Audubon, the way the way I imagine my chapter, Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society, in, in working through this in the future is just to create more educational experiences for people, not to uh, not to worry so much about the software or the technology, although that is very interesting. But I think you have to you have to learn the basics first and you have to be comfortable with that uncertainty when you're faced with something. It's really not it doesn't help you as a learner to be given the answer too quickly. Uh, And I think it makes it more interesting and more memorable when you actually go through a a rigorous, sometimes difficult uh, learning process. I see us offering more educational programs in the future. I see us offering more remote learning, more online uh, productions, uh, more interactive activities so that it engages people in the learning process. We could easily just post tons of information on our website that would tell people what's where and tell them what something is. But I think that's just not that's not good enough. I think what we have to do is help people appreciate the uh, the learning experiences that are right around here. And that will uh, solidify, solidify their knowledge. I'm not sure that answered your question, but that's sort of how I see Audubon, really. And it was a, not the best worded question, pretty broad, but I think I think that you you hit a bunch of interesting things there. You know, one is that there are all these tools that exist, but ultimately it, I think it goes back to what you said before that we need people to be curious about what they're seeing, which then triggers that progression through to caring. Step in, I I uh, I have to say how much I enjoy eBird. Uh, I mean, I look at the website several times a day, and then I'm entering, I'm constantly entering data for it. And I'm using it not only to store my information, but to add my information to the, you know, to the database that grows and grows and grows and becomes better with the more people that use it. But I also use it as a research tool, just like a huge library. I don't always know where to look because that's that's what you find in a library. But there are there are ways to narrow your search. Uh, You could play with the maps uh, and make discoveries about the maps. And you could ask any one of my students in my class how often I use eBird during a single presentation, making screen captures of maps, uh, playing some of the songs in class, trying to use the checklist to inform us about what to expect and what is truly a surprise and how to anticipate or possibly explain vagrancy in an area. And eBird is really simply the best resource for this, uh, and it just keeps getting better and better. So it's a, it's a good storage area for our own information. It can be a fabulous research tool when you're planning on making a trip or you want to figure out how you're going to find a California condor, how you're going to how you're going to see it for your own eyes, and how to use it as as an instruction tool for instruction. That is not one of those high-tech solutions that I wince at. This is a really powerful one that I really love because what it does is it encourages people to look and learn and uh, explore. And that's what I truly love about eBird. I'm an eBird addict myself. I've been uh, I've been looking this year with Shelter in Place and on the app on the phone it it gives you comparisons to the number of species you've seen by this point in the year 
year over year. So that's been something I've been uh, keeping an eye on. Uh, it's kind of unique, perhaps uh, disappointing, though, since uh, since we can't get out as much, the numbers aren't as good, but uh, mm-hmm. it's still interesting data. Yeah, actually, on the uh, by the, on uh, on the contrary, I think my county list is growing because I haven't been traveling very far. I've been just buzzing around the county and uh, working on the house list. So, <laughs> yeah, it, my my neighboring counties and the statewide uh, numbers are down uh, from previous year, but uh, my county list is higher than ever. But that's that's been quite a kind of a fun experience too, and a fun challenge, you know, working on the five mile radius or even the one mile radius to try to, to it, it, what it does is it creates kind of an enjoyable personal challenge. It's not competitive to look at your five mile radius and my five mile radius. They are completely different and there's nothing we can do about that. So we don't get this sense that, oh, you've got some birds that I don't have. I need to rush to find them. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, what you're doing is you're exploring your own neighborhood, and so am I. And uh, I like the fact that they can't really function as competitors. The county birding phenomenon where people run around and try to get the highest possible number for the county, it, it's it, that's not the goal. The goal is to learn more about the county, not simply to rack up the numbers. For me right now, I'm, I'm learning that my five-mile radius in my county have wonderful places to go birding and you really don't need to go halfway to uh, halfway to Mars to to find some great birds they're right here it's just a matter of looking more deeply you know taking an interest I agree I've decided that I've been going to the same spot every weekend for the last several weeks and I'm really enjoying seeing how migration progresses in the one spot over time and that's uh, it's been a nice sort of pleasant surprise of being forced to stay near home. So I think that as you were talking about the vision of of the chapter, you mentioned a bit about more uh, remote learning, interactive opportunities. And again, back to COVID, I think that it, it seems like from what I've observed anyway, that that has sort of forced the issue a little bit sooner. I'm curious how how it's impacted your vision for, for where you want to go and maybe the timelines. Well, it's you know, COVID-19 has highlighted the fact that Audubon is by nature a really social organization. We spread our message by word of mouth and by person-to-person interaction, by the field trip schedule that we have, where newcomers come to a field trip and experience the excitement of finding a new bird. That's possible, but it's not quite the same uh, when you're by yourself. To share the energy with other people other newcomers to birding or the trip leader, it's just really engaging. And so we don't, we haven't for uh, about two months been able to have that experience. So we're trying to create ways to make that experience possible while we're still sheltered at home. It is possible, but it's it's difficult and it's a, a new way to learn. It's a new way for us to, to work. I think the idea of remote learning and interactive Uh, activities on the website. Those already existed, but I think now they're more urgent. Uh, I I see us doing more of that for sure, but it was already sort of in the works. We were already planning on improving our offerings. I think it's an exciting time. There's, uh, I've looked around a bit. I don't see very many Audubon chapters 
doing much in the space yet. So um, you're uh, you're paving the way, I think, for a lot of uh, of those groups. We're getting close to an hour in already. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Maybe uh, maybe I'll shift focus here just for a couple of quick sort of rapid fire wrap up questions. And I'm curious about people that that have kind of gotten hooked on whether it's birding or ecology or conservation. You, know, you, you mentioned your early field guides. What other books have really been beneficial or eye opening to driving you towards this career path? Yeah, there are uh, there are a few, I think. Rather recently, I really, really enjoyed uh, Living on the Wind by Scott Friedensohl. Uh I think what that did is a couple of things. One, it's absolutely beautiful to read. His uh, writing is spectacular. And it, it really captures the phenomenon, the, 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 uh, the wonder of, of migration, uh, as well as the urgency and the, the need for birds to move from place to place and the evolution of how it began. That was really a fascinating, beautiful read, and I, I appreciated it because I love literature, and I feel that falls into that category of, of it's, a, it's a literary book about a real-life um, scientific phenomenon, and I thought it was beautiful. I also really like a book called Natural History of California by Alan Schorner, uh, and what it does is it, it kind of breaks down California as a state uh, in really, really great detail about how everything from plate tectonics to rainfall to forest types and drainage geology how that affects the animal life you know a good portion of the book is about birds but clearly not everything there are amphibians and mammals and plants and lichens so it's pretty fascinating and it's a really wonderful read uh, especially if you're traveling around the state when COVID-19 is passed and we can drive around some more um, it's a great book to read when you're in the Sierra or on the uh, eastern uh, eastern Sierra. So I love that. Along the same lines, there's a, a Peterson Guide, uh, e- uh, Ecology of Western Forests. Again, what these two books did is they helped me understand how birds fit into a setting, uh, how they interact with the plants and the other animals in that area. Not specifically about birds. It's about the ecology of the forest. And for that matter, you know, recently the book Overstory I read and loved. It's a pretty long book about the um, conservation of trees and the people that care for trees and what trees mean to people and culture. So I love that book as well. There's a book that David Attenborough wrote called uh, Life on Air, which is about his his development as, you know, really one of the leading faces, one of the most most uh, celebrated personalities in wildlife programming. And I love his story because uh, he had a rocky beginning, kind of like a lot of us have. And I, I won't compare uh, his story to mine, but I will say that mine was rocky at the beginning, too. So <laughs> it was comforting to know that he didn't start off to be the amazing powerhouse that he is now. But uh, I love that. So field guides, yes, of course, they were important. But it was the books that brought things together and placed birds in uh, in, in a habitat so I could appreciate uh, their part and my part in, in the natural world. Right. Uh, so I've got a couple of good ideas for myself from your list, I think. Um, I, I do have uh, the Natural History of California book, and I really think that 
happy. I, I wish there was a book like that for every region of the country. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For for the people listening, or maybe the people listening and their, you know, so they can relay to perhaps their family and friends. What would be one actionable step that you would recommend that people can take to reduce their impact on the environment, help the help the ecology for birds? Yeah. So that's an interesting question, not easy to answer. Uh, and I think potentially an easy answer would be eat less red meat, you know, shop locally, drive less, exercise more, uh, things of that sort. But everybody says that. I guess that's too obvious for a good answer. I think, I mean, you've heard the seriousness with which I take education. And I think probably what I would recommend is if you truly want to do something good for the environment, read about the environment and learn about the environment and make that your new passion. Because I guarantee that the minute you start learning about the birds or the animals, the plants, the uh, butterflies, etc., the minute you start learning about those things and seeing how they fit together uh, with other species and what they need in their habitat, what they call home, you will care. And when you care, it'll change your behavior. And I think that there, there's no way that the change in behavior that that would provoke in anyone would have a positive impact on the environment. All right. Yeah, that's a foundational step. It makes a lot of sense. So, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I wanted to give you an opportunity before we close out for today to let people know where they can find your work, where they can find out more about Santa Clara Valley Audubon and your artwork and anything else that that you might want to direct people towards. Well, Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society, uh, of course, uh, look at that. That's where you'll see all kinds of stuff that we're uh, putting online, including some uh, fun videos that myself and Carolyn, uh, the education coordinator, have been assembling, as well as member submitted videos. Uh, we're, we have a really a growing archive of rich media that we're putting online, and uh, it's open for public submission. You just have to fill out the form and, and get a video up there. But we've got videos on native gardening, videos on local birding hotspots, uh, instructional videos that I've been producing and that Carolyn have been producing on birding basics. That'd be a great place to to look for that information. As far as artwork, my uh, my blog, it's a difficult uh, a blog to spell because it uses um, a Latin word, neornithes, N-E-O-R-N-I-T-H-E-S, neornithes.wordpress.com. That's my blog where I post artwork in progress, but that's a good place to look for the artwork. Great. Yeah, I'll make sure that in the show notes that go along with this that we have links to everything we talked about, including the books and the uh, Santa Clara Valley Audubon website and your blog. So, eh, Matthew, is there anything else? I'll give you one chance here uh, that, that you really wanted to talk about today that perhaps we didn't get to. <laughs> Well, you asked me uh, earlier what uh, my most, uh, I think you said the most amazing or the most frightening or the most dangerous encounter I'd had with, with birds. So I'll, I'll tell you two stories, uh, two quick stories. Uh, the most amazing uh, encounter I ever had with a bird was when uh, Kelly and I were 
Cricket, my wife, also called Kelly, were in uh, Point Reyes uh, during the King Tide several years ago. And it was a horrible, horrible storm. So rain was coming down. Water was coming in from the ocean. Water was coming down from the hills. And a place called uh, Waldo's Dyke was completely flooded. But we went there because we knew we might see black rail. And we did. We saw 10 of them. And then uh, as we were walking around, uh, we saw kind of a straw-colored, streaky bird at our feet, just two feet away from my foot. And it was so well camouflaged that I could barely see it. And Cricket found it and said, it's right by your foot. Uh, We watched it for a moment, and what it was was a yellow rail. Uh, It's kind of a mythic bird that neither one of us had ever hoped we would see. We just didn't believe it could ever happen. But it did. We were basically touching distance to it, and then it flew and revealed the uh, the white secondary feathers, and then it, it flew away, and we, we were able to actually re-find it a bit later. But that was the most amazing thing. And after it was over, uh, we fell down on our backs in the pouring rain and in the mud and just laughed like crazy children because we had seen something we thought was nearly uh, imaginary. So <laughs> that was that. And then the, the other quick story is that uh, on our fifth anniversary, we went to Australia and we uh, we wanted to see southern cassowary. So that's a very large, five foot tall, 200 uh, pound bird, flightless, of course. And uh, one came to the back of the property where we were staying and I wanted to get a better look. So I walked down the back stairs of the veranda and peeked around the, the corner of the building and the uh, Southern cassowary walked toward me and it started to eye my midsection, which is what they do before they kick. And when they kick, they can kill because they, they have a, a claw on their inside toe that's as long and as sharp as a knife. So the uh, keeper of the property decided to throw down a, a melon rind to break the bird's attention. And it worked because the bird was face to face with me, ready to kick, ready to kill. The owner of the property threw the melon down on the ground. It smashed behind the uh, cassowary and the cassowary turned quickly and I turned quickly and ran away. <laughs> so, <laughs> on our fifth anniversary, Cricket was worried that she might take me home in a body bag or something because it, it uh, was very close to being a fatal encounter with the southern cassowary. So, yeah, those are uh, those are birds not to mess with. I, uh, <laughs> I was lucky enough to spend some time in North Queensland last fall. Uh, actually, a pla- the place was called Cassowary House. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, that's where you were. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, unfortunately we struck out. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get to see one, but but the signs were everywhere: danger, cassowaries on the roads. You know, it's it, it was uh, the aura was still there despite not actually being able to see one. It was a moment for the wildlife program. <laughs> <laughs> was it a, a what not to do? I guess. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Don't don't try this at home. But uh, anyway, it's a story that not many people share. So. It's kind of it's kind of fun to remember it. I, I'm now to the point where I no longer am afraid to want to tell the story. 
Yeah, you, when you see a picture of a cassowary, uh, I guess what I should do in the show notes is perhaps uh, link to one. You could see the direct line back to dinosaurs. Like, oh, it's, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Particularly Velociraptor with that claw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's quite a story. Well, thank you again, Matthew. I, I appreciate all the time you spent today and, uh, and walking through so many different topics. I hope you had a good time. I did. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And a quick reminder that all of the things that we talked about today, the books, the websites, interesting birds, and other items can be found in the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.